with technology increasingly affecting every aspect of our lives, it's important to understand how it affects us psychologically. Welcome to the Psychology of Technology podcast, where we look at how humans and machines collide. And welcome to the very first episode of the Psychology of Technology. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the psychological impacts of technology in the 21st century. With me in the studio is the wonderful Mr. Brett Raven. Brett, how are you today? I'm good, Kareem. How are you? Very well, thank you. Good. Brett and I met, I'd say, a good 20 years ago. We are both technologists in some form or another. Uh, I've been in the industry for over 30 years, coming mainly from a software development and infrastructure background. Obviously, things have changed since the days that I started programming. In fact, I don't think people use the word programming so much anymore. And infrastructure has been replaced more with terms like cloud and APIs. Anyway, so... I'm going to throw to you, Mr. Raven. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? A little bit about me. Hmm. So I've been in technology for over 30 years now, I hate to say. Through the course of my history, I've been a network engineer, a hardware, building PCs, ran a little business in Canada, been in the software industry for quite a long time now, mostly doing things like software development, software solution engineering, and so on. Um, But of late, I've been uh, working at Salesforce for the last 10 or 12 months. My role in in Salesforce is a technology architect, so I really look at like an enterprise architect level. Uh, and I should caveat here that I do work for Salesforce and the opinions of myself are not necessarily reflected by the company. Can you tell us a little bit about your career prior to joining Salesforce? Yeah, so for the last seven or eight years previous to Salesforce, I was the CTO or CIO of a couple of reasonably well-known retail brands here in Australia. Um, very much an e-commerce presence between Red Balloon and Lux Group. And during those times, I spent a lot of time and sleepless nights trying to make websites go faster and transact at a much higher rate. It's really been my focus for the last you know, eight or nine years. Previous to that, I was working for this little company called Salentive, which was a boutique custom software development house, and we had some pretty impressive customers back then, if you recall. And uh, they still do now. They still do I, now. I can yes. say that with first-hand knowledge. I uh, should probably talk a little bit about myself. I come from both a psychological and technological background. I'm studying both psychology and computer science at uni. I've got an interest in both. I founded Salentive in in London in the early 90s, so nearly uh, 27 years ago, I think it is. Uh, Ever since then, the organization has been focused on delivering what we call tailored software solutions for the enterprise. So most of our clients are, are either mid or slightly larger organizations, although we do have some pretty amazing funded startups as clients as well. We've done some pretty cool things over the years, and I, I won't go into them right now. But uh, one of the things that I want to talk to about today is the difference between what I call business tech and consumer tech. And um, they're obviously... They serve different user bases, but there's a, probably a bit more t- to the differences than just who uses them. And my definition goes a little bit like this. When I talk about consumer tech, I'm often talking about social networks, etc. And in the social network scenario, you're talking about what appears to be a free service. Often that is not the case. And so the mindset behind providing such platforms is probably quite different to that of, of those providing business tech. And I, I think the, diff- the, the fundamental difference is it, on those platforms, they are looking to keep you on there for as long as possible so that they can show you as much advertising to generate as much revenue. In business tech, it's almost the exact opposite. The whole idea is to get you through the process as quickly as possible to bring down your costs for the organization for which you work. Business tech usually costs money, well, it costs money directly, so... That's how the providers of tech get their remuneration, by selling licenses and subscriptions. 
where consumer tech tends to be supposedly free, but actually what a lot of people don't realise, and, and oh, this has been talked about a lot now, I think Tristan Harris, who's quite famous in this space, I think an ex-Facebook employee, he's also one of the main producers of The Social Dilemma that, that's on Netflix at the moment. He talks about the concept that uh, the user of those social platforms is not the customer, they are actually the product, uh, if you haven't heard this before. The customer is the advertiser. So I think there's a very different mindset between the two. And I think it's very important to understand who you are and what's happening to you while it's happening to you. Uh, Look, I tend to agree. I I think I disagree a little bit with your description of B2C being specifically a social network, social media, because there's a whole raft of other B2C type organizations out there, including e-commerce platforms, well, for example. I, I was going to exclude e-commerce. I think the thing with e-commerce is you, you know you know the score with e-commerce. You know how the money's going to be made. H- however, there is, um, and the diff- this is one of the differences I see as well, is when you're running a B2C shop, effectively, there is a lot more impetus for you, as you've said, to continue to have people come back yep. and also stay on site, interact. And along that process, you're also trying to drive a set of behaviors um, like you know, product recommendations, for example, to try and increase basket size or average order value, which is a lot more relevant in the B2C space. So even though you know, the co- conversations we've had in the past around social media being a bit nefarious because it's really driving eyeballs and clicks and that bottom line of whoever the customer is at that point, which is the advertiser, it's a very different method that you look at. I think the B2C commerce space is a drift away from that and towards the B2B, but it still sits kind of on its own where there's still an impetus to try and drive more activity and more revenue based on what a user is doing on the site. Whereas for myself, B2B is more a place where people go to buy things potentially. So if you look at, let's just talk about e-commerce for a minute. B2C e-commerce is a place for us to build, to sell to people. B2B commerce is more a place you build for companies to come and buy from you. There's a different mindset. So it's almost like procurement in a way mm-hmm. versus the B2C thing, which is advertise, cross-promote, cross-sell, try and get all that um, you know extra revenue off the top line um, in that sense. And then there's the other side of the B2B business, which is more that operational type stuff, which is, I think, what you're talking about, more the enterprise operational type software that people do pay a premium for. So, so it's probably, in my view, there's four camps, two on either side, uh, and they do have their kind of priorities and, and uh, different kinds of features in reality. I think, though, one of the, the most stark differences between one of them and the rest of them is you understand your place. You, you understand what's going on. When you look at the B2C side, I think if in, the ca- in the case of e-commerce, you probably have a reasonable idea, which is that this particular seller is trying to sell me stuff and they're going to get make their money from when I transact. They're going to do a bunch of other things that are going to try to make me buy from them. And so they're going to, um, what, do, what does Google call it? It's um, remarket to yep, me. Retargeting. Retargeting, that's right. Retargeting. They're going to do things like recommendations, etc. But I think most people sort of are aware of all of that. But maybe to a certain extent they're not. But I think you've kind of touched on something, which is the bleed over between the B2C commerce world and the social media space because the retargeting happens on those social channels. Yeah. And those social channels know enough about you from a transactional perspective to try and drive that behavior. So it creates a bit of a looping process. So they're tied together is what you're saying. Mm. But I think my whole issue here is is consent because I don't think most people are consenting to that to the amount of data that's being collected. Yeah, look, I, I know what you're saying. I think it also happens, though, on e-commerce sites where you're not necessarily sure the kinds of signals that you're leaving behind when you're browsing on a site. And yep. 
and then browsing on subsequent sites. Now, I know that's being clamped down a bit more with the whole third-party cookie restrictions. I won't get into the details of that, but that's basically less and less allowed to watch you across multiple websites so you don't see the behavior of that. But it has been happening for a while now. And I think that's one of the things that um, under the hood of the auspice of an e-commerce transaction, as you're saying, there's still a lot of semi-dodgy things going on and I think people need to be a bit more aware of. Yeah, I mean, even with that consent stuff, a lot of the websites, you'll go on there for the first time, it'll ask you about the cookies and you'll say, no, I don't want this, I don't want that. And then you go back on there later in the day, it'll ask you again. Hmm. And the whole thinking here is, I'm in a rush, I couldn't be bothered, I'll just click the, yep. take the easiest path. By that stage, it's too late because now you've consented. And you've consented to things that you probably are not aware of as well, like every bit of behavior is tracked on the website, so they know where you're spending time, where you're looking, what things you're putting in your basket, where your wish list is going. Well, this is what I heard the other day, I didn't even realize this, but measuring the way you swipe on your phone, not mm. not wh- not which direction, the way your finger moves. Like the strength. Yeah, and just getting a sense of your individual patterns and then what is the relationship between the way you are handling your phone and making a purchase. So it, two things I want to raise about that from a just an e-commerce perspective is there are tools that you can actually watch people interact with your website live and also record it as well, Yeah, which is interesting, especially from a retailer's perspective, because you get to see the actual behavior of what's going on your website. You can see where people might get frustrated. They might be scrolling up and down or doing what's called rage clicks. So there's a lot of really interesting insights into that. And seeing that as a playback is interesting because you can get a feel for you know where people might drop off and you can optimize your experience. But watching that live is actually, it feels a bit creepy. And the other one is interesting and something people should be aware of is if you open up a chat window, so a lot of websites now have live chat where you can go on and you can you know interact with somebody rather than picking up a phone call, yeah. which I think has been an amazing move in customer service over yeah, the last few I years. Yeah, I I love chat. But what a lot of people don't realize is everything that you type in, regardless of whether or not you hit the send button, is seen by the customer service person on the other side. Right. So if you're starting to type something that is quite you know negative and you decide to back space over it, they've seen it already. It's actually a fairly common feature in chat applications. So I think there is there is an undertone of you don't know what you're giving away mm. on, on commerce sites like that. But at the same time, how manipulative can it be? I guess is the question. Yeah, well, so I mean, at this point, it's hard to tell. I think with technology getting better all the time, it'd be interesting to see how far they're gonna go in terms of manipulating the way we behave. I mean, going back to that Social Dilemma movie, you know, the concept of what happens to kids um, in terms of social media, etc. So older folk like you and I are probably less influenceable, but younger people who don't know a world pre mm. the current technology um, are locked into this mindset that, and everything they do is measured by what happens on the social networks. Validation, like the constant seeking validation. Yeah, yeah. constant. So that's a pretty scary concept if you think about it. I, I think also one of the issues is is the lack of government regulation. And it depends on what country. Of course, if you're in the US, that's partly in line with the way they view running a country. I also think there's an element of lack of knowledge. And so it strikes me that the best technologists in the world tend not to work for the government Hmm. because the money's not as good, probably. Unless they're working in more unscrupulous ways in which they're getting paid a lot more. Although, I mean, recently the Australian government has taken on Google. I don't know if you've noticed the Hmm. Google and YouTube. I haven't got to the bottom of it yet because 
YouTube put on all these very alarming messages, but it sounds like hysteria. I mean, I know that I know what it's about, but I don't know the details of it yet. And it's hard to get a balanced information set, given that the first place I normally go if I want to understand something is Google. Yeah. So. Yeah. Look, I mean, on that topic, of course, and just to highlight the issue is, you know, Google has built a significant amount of their revenue off the back of people searching and getting content from other sites. So Google showing you news sites and news content and where the news companies are not getting any benefit from it materially yeah. um, is the argument at the end of the day. Yeah, but in that particular case, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, look, I think that um, there is a lot of posturing going on right now, and I think that the media companies are really pushing hard and asking for very unreasonable things based on what I've read as a starting point. It's like mm. a negotiation tactic in a way. Mm. There'll be some middle ground that happens in some way where the media will have to cough up something, or Google will have to cough up something as a user license type approach mm. and you know this is symptomatic of the fact that it's an industry that's um, really struggled as online media you know mm. online news and so on to struggle to find a consistent way of um, having a business model that makes sense that keeps them relevant in the future and, that, and this is the whole thing about monetization so Google can monetize all of this through advertising and therefore it doesn't need to charge for the content yeah. where those organizations do need to charge for their content I, I wonder if I mean, I suppose that what the, the Australian government is saying is you need Google to charge for that content as well. And then that levels out the playing field because if you're giving away other people's information, which they've spent money producing, and you're getting money through other revenue and you're not passing any of that on to the, those produ producers, then that's not a fair deal. Do you think, though, so, you know, as a set of consumers, there's a significant amount of the consumer base that wouldn't understand as you've said before, um, that there's a cost associated with running these businesses. So they gotta make money somehow at the end of the day. Yeah. I wonder if there would be uh, any motivation at a societal level to pay a little bit to Google rather than just be hmm. content consumers and advertising consumers. We, you know, everybody pays like five bucks a month and that gets them access to search and news and whatever it is and be a huge business model for Google. Well, it would take the pressure off of having to be jammed, you know, information jammed down our throat all the time. So Google have now have a couple of options like Google Premium. For Google Premium, you, don't, you're, you get no ads for a start. Hmm. Uh, there's a few other things you can download stuff off, off YouTube. Sorry, YouTube Premium. Um, and then there's also, they've got this other thing now for if you have a channel you can be a member, I don't know if you've seen that. So through Google, you can be a member to a channel where Google collects the money and gives it to the channel producers. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so that's a little bit along the way. Like a rev share kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know the details of it, but that's the next thing that they're doing. So, um, look, we, we're kind of getting there. I, I think, you know, the big tech companies are so big and so powerful, it's hard to really stop them doing anything. Yeah, and the, you know, if you look at companies, you know, Facebook is such a good one that's been continues to get dragged through media and uh, you know government and and court cases and so on over the years. I think the fine line that they walk based on the requirement of their business model is, uh, you know, they don't you know, they they take the opinion of either we moderate or we don't. So either we are censors or we don't. There's yeah. really kind of no gray area, which I argue they are in a bit of gray area, but they would say that they're not. And they don't want to be treated like a media business, so they don't really want to have responsibility for what's on their platform, yet they want the benefits of what's on their platform. Mm. So I think there's going to be some sort of shift that happens that pulls apart their business model in a way that is going to have a negative impact on the business overall. I think they're going to take a hit in the next two or three years yep. uh, and have to reinvent themselves in some way. Whether that ends up being you know, a, um, 
a splitting up, like a demerger in some ways of the different business models to try and make them a bit more sustainable um, separately or some other mechanism where they become a bit more realistic as a business from a, a so social responsibility perspective because I think they're failing in that massively at the moment. Mm, I agree. I think this all comes back to the idea of maybe somebody who's grown up in the business tech world, it all the business tech side of things makes a lot more sense to me than some aspects of consumer tech. But mm. anyway, I want to say thank you for our very first pod episode of our podcast and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds good. Look forward to next time. <laughs>